Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Poetic Plonk. I hope you're doing well. On this episode, we'll be exploring the concept of true love. Now, we won't really be going into whether it exists or not. Obviously, everyone is open to their own opinions. Um, But in this episode, we'll be exploring a poem by an English romantic poet called John Clare. And if you are enjoying the podcast, then do go ahead and turn on the podcast notifications and go and give us a review, whether you're on Spotify, Spotify, yep, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, a review always helps us to pass on the pod. So let's get into episode 14. So today we'll be exploring an English romantic poet called John Clare and his poem, True Love Lives in Absence. But firstly, let's delve into the life and career of John Clare himself. John Clare was born in the British countryside of Northamptonshire in 1793, and he went on to become one of the most renowned poets of this period for his romanticism of not just the English countryside, but the industrialization that came along with it and disrupted the English countryside at that time, in his opinion. So I will forewarn you that despite Clare being one of the most talented poets of the Romantic period, his story is actually far from happy. Clare's childhood was actually action-packed, and while still a young child, he assisted his father as a farmer on their farm. He worked as a gardener, enlisted in the local militia, and gave camp life with gypsies a whirl, and even worked as a lime burner. And upon research, I had no idea what a lime burner was, but a lime burner is a person who burns limestone to create lime, essentially. But unfortunately, Claire's life as a poet did not begin on a happy note. His first poetry collection was brought to life due to financial struggles and difficult circumstances. He actually offered his first poetry collection to a local bookseller in an attempt to prevent his parents getting evicted from their home. In the first collection, poems descriptive of rural life and scenery was highly rated at the time. And that same year, in 1820, Claire went on to marry Martha Turner. So as we can hear, it was quite a quick turnaround from Claire having financial struggles and having to save his parents from getting evicted from their own home to selling his very first poetry collection, being able to earn enough from that, save his parents, and then go on to marry his girlfriend, Martha Turner. And if we fast forward a few years, once Claire and Martha actually began raising their children, Claire began to have a feeling that he was being torn between two loves in his life, the city and the countryside. He was very much torn between the hustle and bustle of literary London and the serene countryside where few people actually knew how to read. He was torn between the need to write poetry and the need for money to feed and provide clothes for his own children. The constant struggles and pressures ended up taking its toll on Claire's mental health. He actually developed severe depression which only got worse after the birth of the family's sixth child. The contributing factor of his depression at the time was actually that his poetry was not really selling well, so the family was heading back into a financial depression as such. 
and even his last piece of work that came to fruition called The Rural Muse in 1835. It did gather some support from critics, but unfortunately it still wouldn't help him to support his family and be rid of the financial struggles they were facing. So to cope with all of this depression, not only financially but mentally, he decided to turn to alcohol, which led to alcoholism and in that sense more erratic behaviour. And after verbally abusing his castmate on stage during the production of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, friends and family of Claire's convinced him to seek help at an asylum. And in those days, an asylum would have been the equivalent of a mental health hospital, but naturally the conditions would have been significantly worse than they would be nowadays due to, well, basically little to no health regulations and virtually no safety standards at the time. So Claire ended up spending the latter years of his life in and out of various asylums. He would go home to his family, but he wasn't really present. He actually went home one time believing that he was married to his childhood love rather than Martha, which must have not only been difficult for Claire naturally, but also his kids who were seeing this all unfold before them, and naturally his wife as well, who was basically had to witness the capitulation of not only her husband, father to the children, but also, on a simple basis, the person she loved the most. And in his final years, Claire was at the Northampton General Lunatic Asylum, which, upon doing research, I think the names of these places really emphasise how negative society looked at these people to essentially call a mental health hospital or any sort of place where they would want to take care of people with, well, not necessarily depression, but just any mental health issues, that they would call these people lunatics. It seems very condescending, but also infers that there's not really any hope left, because if you think of a lunatic, well, in my mind anyway, you would kind of refer to someone, I mean, he's not really a true character, but someone like the Joker in, in the Batman movies, with his erratic behaviour, and at that point, there isn't really any rehabilitation. So I think at that time, when they called a hospital a lunatic asylum, it does kind of show that they have a negative perspective on people's rehabilitation, that essentially all hope is already lost. So if we go back to Clare and his time in the Northampton General Lunatic Asylum, in this period... And in this location is actually where Claire wrote what would go on to be his most famous poem called I Am. And in this poem, Claire captures how it feels to feel lonely and alienated from life. He states that he exists, but his existence is of little interest to those around him. But today, we'll be exploring a poem Claire wrote about love, true love. So albeit his story and his poems can be quite sad and depressing, today's poem will very much be optimistic and we'll be exploring true love, as I've said. But before we move on to the poem, it's very much important to recognise the climate he lived in and how that influenced his poetry. So living in the 19th century in England meant significant change back then, regardless of whether you lived in a city or deep in the countryside. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing, 
And this meant a lot of agricultural workers would move to cities to follow the factory work where, where the money was to be had, essentially putting agriculture on the back burner. And naturally growing up as the son of a farmer, and also helping around on the farm, meant that this change deeply distressed Claire. I mean, as a whole, it was a lot of change for everyone to move from deep in the countryside to a city if you were going to take part in the Industrial Revolution. But for someone who grew up on the farm and very much had a lot of his first memories influenced by life on a farm, it must be very difficult to see agriculture and the agricultural industry in Britain plunge into a significant decline at the time. And Clare's early poetry actually focused on nature and the ever-changing seasons that we witness. He celebrated the certainties that nature brings along with it. It's a safe space for animals, and nature's also on a simple level where crops can be grown and harvested, which enables farmers to earn their money. And later on in life, Claire transformed his poems to be more introspective and meditative, which we can see in his poem, I Am, where he's very much expressing his mental state. But today, we're focusing on Claire's perspective of love and how absence affects it. So, without further ado, this is True Love Lives in Absence by John Clare. True Love Lives in Absence like angels, we meet her, dear as dreams of our childhood, I, dearer and sweeter. The words we remember, by absence unbroken, are sweeter and dearer than when they were spoken. There's a charm in the eye, there's a smile on the face, time, distance or trouble can never deface. The pleasures of childhood were angels above, and the hopes of my manhood, all centred in love. The scenes where we met, I, the joys of our childhood, there's nothing so sweet as those fields of the wildwood, where we met in the morning, the noon and the gloaming, and stayed till the moon high in heaven was roaming. Friends meet and are happy, so are hopes fixed above, but there's nothing so dear as first meetings of love. So I think as a whole, this is a poem that a lot of people will be able to relate to, even if it isn't necessarily through romantic love, but familial love. Now it's clear that the poem is definitely written from and for a romanticism, but the overarching message of the poem is that we appreciate love more when we aren't directly in the presence of it. Now, we tend to miss family and friends when we're not with them, but naturally, when it comes to a relationship, missing that person when we're not with them is on a whole different level, basically on a different floor if we want to speak about it metaphorically. So let's explore Claire's poetry as to how the absence affects him. The words we remember are sweeter and dearer than when they were spoken. This line emphasises the power of words, but more importantly the weight that words can carry when they're spoken by someone we love. Sweeter and dearer than when they were spoken, and naturally in the present and in that specific moment, we do value the words when we hear them. 
but if we remember them to this day, then that truly shows just how much value we put on them and how much power they carried at the time and still do. So in that sense, this line delivers its purpose perfectly by reminding us exactly how much value we place on words that are spoken to us. And naturally, we also remember various bad things that are said to us. But that's not what this poem is about at all. By absence, unbroken, shouldn't of course be forgotten when exploring this stanza. This line itself ties the whole stanza to the overarching meaning of the poem, that not even the absence of someone can harm or jeopardize the value of the words that were said to us. And this links nicely to the overarching and overall structure of the poem. So I'd just like to go through each stanza bit by bit to explore that structure. And in the first stanza, Claire talks about the way that we perceive the person, the one that we hold closest to us, dear as dreams of our childhood. The first stanza is comparing this figurative person to an angel. And then when we move on to the second stanza, Claire goes on to emphasize the power and the value of the words of this person, that despite their absence, we will always remember certain things they said. And then if we pivot onto the third stanza, in my opinion, it explores certain characteristics or visual things that we remember, such as their smile, that are naturally timeless because we'll always have that image in our head and have the imagery of specific memories that we shared with them. So I think this is also the first part in the poem where we explicitly are given imagery to relate to, for me, it's the easiest moment to relate to the poem, as it's where you're emotionally able to connect to the poem itself. Now, as a reader, you can connect this stanza naturally with a certain person, which enables an instant connection with the poem, and that's exactly what it does perfectly. Trouble can never deface. This line explores that even if we relate a lot of bad or certain bad connections to a relationship, we can still remember their smile, as it's a memorable thing. Even if we've been through a lot, the timelessness of this memory, or more specifically imagery, will stay with us for years to come in their absence. And the fourth stanza then goes on to talk about the significance of love in adult life. Now, when you're a kid, you obviously listen to fairy tales, Disney, or whatever else, where certain figures are significant to you. But naturally, You've never personally experienced loving someone else in a romantic sense. And the concept of manhood being centered in love really shows just how important and pivotal finding your significant other in the 19th century was. In my opinion, it's not much of a deal now as a lot of us can just go on independently and live our lives. But certainly back in the 19th century, the search for a husband or a wife was a huge deal outrageous gifts were given. Men and women were both pulling out all the crazy stops to get someone else's attention, and would often focus all their energy on this rather than just getting on with life itself. And obviously, only the wealthy at that time could really afford to spend and invest so much time into all the shenanigans that came along with it. But for less fortunate people, I think love and true love is what would have gotten them through such difficult and tough and rough times. 
So I think today, this line is still valid to a certain extent, as even though society is a lot more career-driven, it is still important that we can share certain moments and experiences with someone very close to us. After all, that's why dating apps exist, because even though we won't go out and take someone to a ball, we still want to feel proactive in some way, in a dating sense. And this moves us on to the fifth stanza. And the fifth stanza is the most personal and selfish stanza in the poem, because the stanza in itself is purely Claire's experience that we might not necessarily be able to relate to. He had a childhood love and can relate various moments of his childhood to that. But I think this stanza is harder to relate to. Sure, we may have had childhood crushes and whatever, but a lot of us don't meet a significant other until later on in life. So this leads us on to the penultimate stanza of the poem, the line, where we met in the morning, and it ends with, and stayed until the moon, high in heaven was roaming. Yet again, the imagery here is used to convey late nights and conversations that we have with that special someone, whether you're out late for drinks, on a walk, or just at home talking late. I think it's often these memories that cement a relationship, where certain deep conversations are had, where you really get to know one another on a deep level. And this links nicely to the final stanza in the poem. Friends meet and are happy, so are hopes fixed above. But there's nothing so dear as first meetings of love. First meetings of love will hold multiple or even several different meanings for each of us. It could be that first glance and eye contact, first few dates, or even just the circumstances in which you met. I think here at face value, it's clear that Claire is delivering his message of the significance of that first time meeting someone. You're not just meeting anyone, of course. But if you think back to a certain person, if you're currently in a relationship, then the first time you met your partner. And if not, then whoever else comes to mind. The fact that you remember your first memories or months of life with them shows how significant love is in absence. Because whether you are in a relationship or not, being able to have such vivid and happy memories of those times shows the power of love and how much absence plays a role in that. But in my opinion, I think absence has two effects on love. As the poem explores, one side is naturally that we form stronger memories and attachments to this person, and in that sense, have a deep love and connection with them. But I think the other side of the coin is that absence also enables reflection, as it can cause someone to reflect and think whether this is the person that they really want to be with. Now, that's not me saying that this means that things won't stay the way they are, but rather, the reflection causes us to rationally realise that there isn't anyone else you would rather form those memories with, have those deep conversations with, and above all, be open and comfortably vulnerable with. So in that case, I think as with most situations or stories, there are always two sides of a story, or two sides of a coin. But what's most important to realise is the power of absence in love. That's exactly what Claire wants us to realise and empathise with here, that true love lives in absence. So lastly, 
The title also shows the organic nature and form that love has. Love grows and declines, but the decline doesn't mean it ends a relationship. It could just be a rough patch or a bump in the road where the love needs to be watered and worked on. It needs to be looked after and taken care of, as it is organic. And therefore, it simply can't be forgotten. If it is, then it's clear what the end result will be. So that brings us to the end of episode 14. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you did enjoy this episode, then do go ahead and turn on the podcast notifications and pop us a review. So on that note, I'd like to wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I'll see you on the next one.